Hello and welcome to the August 17th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Romy Kukratsky, and beside me is my colleague, Anthony Bardaway. This episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We'll have a typical news update for you next week, but this week, Anthony's been on a little trip, and we're going to ask him all about it. So, Anthony, let's get right into it. What is this trip? Where did you go? And where do we start? Yeah, so uh, we have a pretty good uh, audience crossover with the Eastern Border podcast, uh, Chris Sapsandresons. He came to Ukraine for another reporting trip along with a uh, German documentarian, and uh, they weren't able to do everything that they hoped for. We hoped to do more frontline stuff, but ran into you know permissions and uh, certification issues, so that didn't happen. But what did happen was I went back to the South. Um, I talked a couple episodes back about visiting Herson um, about a month, month, two months ago, about the the flood and the relief efforts from the flood, and now I kind of saw some of the aftermath of that along the Dnipro River. But in addition to that, went to might as well just go in uh, chronological order to give structure to this. Uh, started off in Odessa. Uh, from Odessa, headed to Mikolaev. From Mikolaev, uh, did not go to Kherson due to the permissions issues, but did go north of Kherson to the uh, dried up riverbed of what used to be the Hakovka Reservoir um, via Kriviri. And then through there into the city of Zaporizhia, which is the other end of the Hakovka Reservoir, and from there back to Kiev. Uh, so that was basically what we did um, about kind of the south central part of Ukraine. Now, I understand your first stop was in Odessa a few days after a massive missile strike on the center of the city, which struck uh, and I believe partially damaged the city's famed Transfiguration uh, Cathedral. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what you saw there and the state Odessa is in? Yeah, even last episode where I talked about this a little bit, I kind of was very mournful for the destruction of parts of uh, central Odessa. It's very historical, very beautiful, very poetic, artistic, all that. Um, but this time around, I decided to, I was able to see the aftermath of this attack. Uh, most of the strikes were mostly cleaned up after. They did not destroy the entirety of buildings. There were a couple museums that were damaged, but by then, you know, a couple days afterwards, you couldn't really see too much of the damage. It had been you know, swept up and everything. But the Transfiguration Cathedral was very heavily hit. This is the main cathedral of the city. It is actually under the Moscow Patriarchate, so Russian Orthodox Church. And the the, the entire roof was basically destroyed. Uh, they the inside of it had been cleaned up really within a day. Like they the the local population really put in the effort to make everything as tidy as it could be. But about a quarter of the roof was missing, uh, and the rest of it will have to be replaced in its entirety. It feels like a pretty deliberate attack on the on the church. Now, I, I don't know how precise exactly the the missiles that Russia was using on the Odessa strike, but I feel like so for for context sake for our listeners, the church is located in basically dead center of Odessa. Um, and it's surrounded by a, a decently sized kind of green area park kind of thing. And there's nothing really that close to it um, to to indicate that, like, there would be another target to aim for. It felt like it was very deliberately targeted. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can just go to Google Maps if you're listening along and see that this Transfiguration Cathedral is in a big park. Like there is no, there's nothing next door to claim that could have been the target otherwise. And it's decently far from the port too. Like pretty far from the port. You, you can't be aiming. It would be an enormous deviation if you were aiming for the port, but somehow hit the church like that. That's strange. That strains credulity. Yeah, it's kind of the far western edge of the downtown area, whereas the port is the far eastern edge of the downtown area. That's kind of like the box of uh, the the layout of the city. And it hit directly on the, uh, what's it called? It basically hit directly on the altar of the church, like where the, the priests do their singing and prayers and all that. That's where it hit smack dab in the middle of. So I don't know if they're aiming for a particular point on that church, but yeah, it's it, there's nothing around it, and it was a like dead center shot, not only on uh, the city but the, like this church specifically. I that would have there's no second guessing what was going on there. Did you have the chance to talk to any of the locals about it? How did they feel about these strikes? Yeah, I actually talked to the priest. Um, or my colleagues talked to the priest, I should say. Uh, and he said that basic, I mean, there were some questions that were avoided, uh, namely, why are you still a part of the Russian Orthodox Church when this, that just happened? Uh, this man almost died. We can set the politics for maybe next week. But he was basically saying how the, the emergency services could not come right away because the Russians have become very known for these double tap attacks, meaning... They will hit an area with a missile, wait about 20 minutes for all the emergency services to be there, and then hit it with another missile. They did that, and I believe still do that quite a bit in Syria. Um, There are numerous stories of first responders and volunteer rescuers in Syria falling prey to, to this tactic. Yeah, extremely common. It is their MO. Um, So the priest calls up the fire department, says, help, our church is burning to the ground right now. Fire department says we have to wait a bit to avoid the double tap, which has killed a lot of emergency emergency responders in Ukraine. Uh, So he says, (laughs) okay, I'll do it myself and goes in with, you know, a hose and a bucket of water to try to take care of the inferno on his own. Um, he was clearly very shaken by this event. Uh, I was talk- talking to him a bit later, like he's trying to keep every- the community together because, of course, he is the priest. Uh, like I said, he'll have to do some thinking about his organizational affiliations <laughs> in the near future. But uh, he's really just trying to hold together this this huge community that would have been at this church because this is the main church of the city. It's a very beautiful church, very big church. And it is pretty much constantly booked for weddings, for baptisms, for every kind of community event you can imagine. Um, it's it's the city's like central church. It's one of the landmarks of Odessa. Yeah, it's it's August. It's wedding season. Things are going on there. The security guard uh, did not want to be super interviewed much uh, who was there. But the security guard who was there at the time was very shaken by this. And of course, he tried to you know help with this emergency situation. Uh, the I, I'm sorry, I don't know all my church terms, but basically the awning, the gazebo of the altar was kind of knocked over to the point where the columns were all just resting 
on the wall. So it felt very not safe to walk underneath this giant concrete gazebo thing that looked like it was about to fall over at any minute. Uh, that will have to be taken care of soon. Uh, I'll post some pictures on the Patreon actually, and in our discord, which we'll advertise later about some of the, about what this looked like for, for the visual of it, because it's very hard to describe just how bizarre this is. For example, there were some other things there that were I a Christian would take as a sign from God. Whereas the, uh, the wall of one of the, like the frescoes, like the paintings on the wall, um, basically everything was knocked down except for Jesus himself, making it look like, uh, the, the crashed roof was like on his back and then on the wall opposite to it, everything was burned off of the wall except for Jesus. So just your basic level of coincidental Christian symbolism. Yeah. The kind of thing that I have full confidence will soon become some kind of relic or something because that's eerie. And speaking of relics, um, did the, the priest mention any reconstruction plans? I mean, they, they certainly like must not be leaving the church in that state. No. So at first, like I said, the cleanup of the church itself was pretty rapid. So uh, all the debris and stuff was organized into piles and all that. That happened within the first day or two. Now the issue is number one, the roof. Uh, so there's one corner of the building that is pretty heavily destroyed, but I think they can just kind of wall that off, demolish it, do something with it. But the important thing in order to eventually reopen it is to yeah re replace replace the roof. It's not salvageable. Uh, so they're trying to get that going as soon as possible. Um, but I do not know what they have put together yet. I don't think anything has really been put together yet, just because they were in this just the stages of figuring out what they have to do. But yeah, just replace the roof. They'll likely be gathering some funds for it, but. I think it will take some kind of priority just because of the importance to the city. Were there any other parts of the, the Odessa Center that were damaged? I, I, I saw that um, a couple of other historical buildings had also sustained some level of damage, but I, it was hard to tell exactly how much um, and to what extent the, the missile strikes had uh, Yeah, the, it, the it, was a, it was mostly a few museums that were hit in the center, which is insane a lot. Like a lot of buildings in the city center are museums of one kind or another. Um, I went by some of them. Uh, they did not look too heavily damaged at this point. Um, though they were closed because there was still damage to the interior. Like the, the, the debris came in through the roof on these things. So there was damage to the interior of these buildings, but I did not see too much to the outer walls. At least with the ones that I went by. I was in Odessa a bit earlier um, in the summer. And like summer season was in full swing. There were um, not that many tourists, but there were still enough tourists to fill up all the restaurants in the evenings. And um, people were out in the streets. And it uh, was almost like your, your normal Odessa summer evenings. Um, after the missile strikes, do, were there a lot less people in the streets? Was there kind of an atmosphere of panic or worry? No, not at all. I think there is definitely, um, there's more security or police on the street this time around than last time. Uh, probably look on the lookout for, you know, uh, 
spotters, infiltrators, that kind of thing. But overall, yeah, it's still summer vacation season, even right next to the church in the park around the church. Like there's a playground immediately next door to the church that's like gigantic and it was still full of kids. Uh, in that park, there's also a bunch of people playing chess all the time. It's a chess park, one of them. You get the idea. They were still there. Uh, the park was still being used exactly how it was right next to the church. The beach was slightly less busy than it usually was, uh, but there are actually big signs all around the city saying, uh, do not swim in the water. There are mines. There are contaminants. It is dangerous. Do not go there. But the beaches still had quite a few people there. So not everyone exactly listening to the warnings. I got to say, it's a little heartening to to hear all that. Considering Odessa is, um, for, for those on listeners who may not be too familiar with Ukrainian subcultures, Odessa is considered very special. Um, Odessites uh, are like historically considered the, the funny ones of Ukraine. Like you can always rely on someone from Odessa to, to have an apropos observation or a joke for basically any, any situation. And it's pretty heartening to hear that that kind of attitude has um, kept through even after these strikes. Yeah, and before we move on to other stuff, I'll have to talk about the, I guess, fixer. There was another journalist at the church. One of my colleagues, the the German documentarian, Victor, he was doing a lot more at the church than than I did because I had just uh, other work I had to do at the time. But he eventually, he even got into like the bell tower of the church, went all the way up. Like he was very involved in the church. He's coming out with a documentary that will feature it quite a bit uh, in the coming, I don't know, two months, he said. But uh, through his connections there, he was with another journalist who did have a fixer. We did not have a fixer. But I was getting to talk to this fixer. Uh, he was from Herson, um, and uh, his he and his uh, friend and his brother, they're from Herson. And he was, and his uh, friend was talking about how um, he actually was in Herson for the occupation for the first few weeks of it. His wife, he and his wife had just had a baby, like I think like two weeks before the invasion. And the first smell of trouble, trouble, uh, his wife and his very newborn baby, like do not move this baby very far uh, age of newborn. They were able to evacuate to Odessa uh, during the initial siege, but he was left behind and he had to live under occupation until he was eventually able to escape. And the way he was like, I, like I had been to her son before the war, I had been to her son during the war and you know i was trying to you know make my small talk about it i'm like oh yeah here's it's nice i've been there uh this that and this other place isn't that nice and he just had the look of a defeated man on his face in that uh his neighbor's house was destroyed uh his neighbor's kids were kidnapped uh taken to crimea and from there who knows where they are now uh, that's a topic we haven't touched on too much on the show actually but the uh, widespread kidnapping of of children to be quote-unquote adopted by Russian families, a, a form of genocide, according to the, the conventions defining such things. We, we had an episode a while back speaking with uh, Christopher Atwood, who's a researcher of uh, genocide. Um, I highly recommend giving that episode a listen to uh, really hear a breakdown of Russia's genocidal acts, um, both legally and morally, against Ukraine. Though the issue of the child kidnapping, I do want to return to at some point. But yeah, he was talking about how, like, the, the neighborhood kids had been kidnapped, how uh, everything 
in his life had been destroyed. And it was just heartbreaking. So he was able to escape the city uh, while it was still under occupation, left whatever was left behind, uh, came to Odessa and joined the army. He's now in the uh, air defense uh, units that protect Odessa from missiles. So, you know, everywhere you go, you run into people with these stories. Like, it affects everyone, and you you never know who will be. Did he express any desire of going back to Herson now that it's liberated? Um, it's too dangerous because he does have a family. Um, he, he, like, he has his family to take care of in Odessa, his wife, his baby. Like, it's not okay to go back there. But even then, he didn't say it, but I could kind of tell that, like, Herson to him has too many bad memories. I don't know if he would. Like, this is just from me intuiting the conversation, not what he told me directly. But it, it's a city that holds a lot of trauma, and I'm sure he's not the only person. So we do have to take that into account with uh, the current liberated territories and the soon-to-be liberated territories. Even if people want to go back home, for some of them, it will just be too painful to even try. So we can't just assume that every city will just be immediately filled back up with its former residents. Absolutely. Um, Bucha, despite being liberated months and months ago now, is still um, suffering from massive depopulation because lots of people just don't ever want to go back to the place where they saw their neighbors and family be shot in the street by Russian soldiers and worse. Though they had been back for humanitarian reasons. And to follow that up, the the other Herson soldier, um, it turned out that we had kind of crossed paths in Herson, actually. Um, so as I told in the episode uh with Herson and in my article by in the Kiev Independent, uh I was shelled. Uh, the, the boat that my group was using was torn up and kind of loaded off to sea somewhere. We don't know what happened to it after the, after the incident. But it turned out that this exact guy who I ran to in the Odessa church is the person who recovered the boat. He was 10 minutes behind me. Like he was in the water when the shelling happened and coming back to shore while our team was leaving shore. <laughs> so he's the, he was able to recover our boat. And um, I still need to contact the people who own the boat, telling them that it still exists somewhere in its completely tattered and broken form. But that was completely crazy to me because I was telling him, oh, I was in Kherson a month ago and got shelled. He's like, oh, you're the guys who got shelled. I'm like, yeah, that's us. Like, we were there too. Small, small world. (laughs) Uh, Now, Odessa wasn't the only place you visited in Odessa Oblast. Um, I also heard you had a bit of a bit of adventure uh, near the Transnistrian border. Yeah, this is another thing that I'll probably direct people to Eastern border about for the full story, just because it's so incredibly silly. Um, but so apparently Kristaps uh, got a message from one of his fans to check out this one village on the border with Transnistria. Summary, it is a region of Moldova that was occupied by the Soviet army in the early 90s, fought a war against Moldova in order to basically stay the Soviet Union, and has been a Russian appendage ever since, and is pretty much run by the Russian mafia. It is a Russian mafia state. 
So we go off to this one village. To, yeah. to be fair, that doesn't really differentiate it from Russia proper. It's worse. And if you want me to describe how what it means worse, check out our uh, last uh, last month's newsletter. But um, the this this village, very small, on the border with Transnistria, and as this becomes an important part of the story, most likely a smuggler-based economy in this village. So keep that in mind. Uh, smuggling things between Transnistria and Ukraine. Uh, so we go to the border. We go through one proper checkpoint into the town. Everything's fine. We get to a dirt road that leads up to the river that separates the two areas. Uh, are approached by the border patrol again. Check our papers. Everything's fine. Go further down the dirt road. Uh, are approached again by another patrol of the border patrol, and we're given a third thumbs up. So very important here. Border patrol knew we were there, approved of it, said it was fine, and like laughed with like everything was super cool. He went through three border checks, not even border checks, like one border check and two like direct, hey, you, what's up kind of scenarios like on their uh, moped patrol along the, the road around the border. This was very much okay. In case anyone is thinking I did anything illegal here, the border patrol said it was fine multiple times. So leading into this, we are go to the, go to the river. My German colleague uh, actually finds a crap ton of marijuana. So the area on the river was a giant marijuana grow uh, production. I don't know what the proper word for that is when it's in the wild and not in a uh, grow house field. It wasn't. It was like in the. It was like in the marsh before the river. Paddy. Sure. Why not? A weed paddy. A weed paddy. So we found a weed paddy, and again, I think this weed paddy is leading into the next situation. So we come back up the dirt road. Uh, back to the main road to get out of there because, you know, we've seen what we wanted to see, at which point. And presumably you wouldn't want to be discovered by Border Patrol in the middle of a weed paddy. Oh, no, we were. We were like, that was the third time that we were discovered by Border Patrol. They, I think they didn't know it was a weed paddy because they didn't care. <laughs> yeah, they came up to us while we were at the weed paddy one time around. So at one, so we go back up the dirt road past this one house that is adjacent to the road, and a man in his underwear comes out, starts yelling that we are like intruders or something. Uh, gets very, very angry. Presumably because you discovered his weed paddy. I'm pretty sure that's what happened, yes. So <laughs> she gets very angry, uh, at one point is threatening to shoot us. Uh, at what point the border patrol shows up again, border patrol says, what are you doing? Everything's fine. And is trying to negotiate our safe passage away from a mostly naked, crazy guy. They show him their identification papers. I am part of the state border service of Ukraine. Here's my number. Here's my badge, all that. And he doesn't believe them because they're not from the village. They are outsiders. So he doesn't believe who they are, who he says they are. He says that they're likely Russian spies and calls the police. He needs the police to be there. And I'll explain this dynamic at the end of the story. 
So the police get there eventually. Uh, they are much more stern. And it's obvious that he's actually friends with the cops. Like he knows these people. And they take his side while the Border Patrol's taking our side, essentially. So there's a bit of a uh uh altercation, not altercation, but a the the two jurisdictional dispute. The two jurisdictions uh, have very different ideas of what to do with us. Well, presumably, you think the the state border patrol. If I remember Ukrainian legislation correctly, um, X amount of kilometers from the border is like exclusively, or like the the border patrol um service has um pretty much like free reign. If I remember correctly, yeah, more like or they're, less. They're, they're the ones that are like local police. Um, should not have authority over the border service. That close to the border. Exactly. But the police still saw it as like their town in the border service as the outsiders. And the border service wanted to basically keep the peace with the locals because otherwise that makes their job more difficult. And it is the Russian army is in Transnistria, so they need the border state border service to like be as effective as possible in this exact location. So then they basically, after a whole bunch of nonsense, uh, we get taken away by the state border service back to their base. The police are under the assumption that like we're being arrested in the car. They tell us, don't worry, you're, we're not going to do anything to you. We're just going to like make you fill out the paperwork and then send you on your on your way. Like once we were fully within the custody of the state border service, they said, yeah, like this is silly. We know. It'll be fine. Don't worry. But then we have to go back to the Border Patrol Service and fill out paperwork, which, if you know Ukraine, is an effort, including having to write things out by hand, which is something the Ukrainian government very much enjoys making you do. It's kind of like an old Soviet technique where they think that they can figure out everything about you and your person from your handwriting. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. Um, though I will say, if your handwriting is atrocious enough, they will offer to do it for you. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can attest to that from personal experience. If your handwriting is bad enough, they will, after watching you for um, torturous, torturous minutes, struggle to write a single sentence, they will uh, eventually feel pity for you and offer to do it yourself, to do it themselves. Right. So basically, we spend the next several hours doing multiple rounds of paperwork. Um, we are actually interrogated by one guy from the SBU, and the SBU guy was actually the nicest out of all of them. Um, so even more so than like the state border service said, the fine would probably be 20 bucks and this just a token. So what exactly was the fine? Like, what was the, the charge that like presumably there was some administrative like rule that, that you'd violate? or something basically being in a restricted area i think they would have been nice enough to warn you about that when you'd gone through the three checks prior to this well yes but it's not assumed that a crazy naked guy will come out and threaten to shoot people if they aren't arrested <laughs> that's the the x factor in this altercation so but because because in the end the border service said it was fine SBO, SBU guy, uh, intelligence, Ukrainian version of the CIA, FBI, uh, he said everything's fine. Like, obviously, things are fine. They looked through our phones. Um, and funnily enough, I was just doing a bunch of paperwork for my bank. 
uh, and a bunch of tax forms and stuff. So on my phone was basically the entirety of every document that I have, which made things easier for them. <laughs> In, in my in my photo role um but we stayed there but yeah the SBI is like obviously this is fine like just let them go like it's no big deal the they're they're very clearly not infiltrators and we actually ended up kind of messing around with the uh crazy naked guy because he kept saying we're right next to transnistria while we were saying what's transnistria we don't recognize the existence of transnistria you mean moldova and that got him really mad so <laughs> <laughs> that was that was fun and then, of course, the SBU guy said, like when we said um, next to the Russian occupied section of Moldova, he's like, oh, yeah, that's 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 good. That's fun. But yeah, so in the end, um, it turned out that we had to pay exactly three dollars as a fine. That was our punishment for being in a restricted area. Whatever. Three three dollars. Yeah, I accept my punishment. Though I, I'm, I'm going to be clear just for the record. I am still not entirely sure what you violated in order to be fined in the first place or why the fine was applied. That is that is not clear to me because it's a border area with technically kind of front liney because the Russian army is. But then they wouldn't have let you through. Yeah, like it's very much a, a technical violation rather than a pragmatic violation. And it's all because we found what was probably this guy's uh, illegal weed grow uh, situation, and that made him very nervous. Which brings us to why he called the police rather than even though the border guard was right there. Police are mostly local, and as you can probably guess from any local area, especially one that is heavily reliant on the smuggling economy, which this village is, the police are in on it, or at least are aware of it and allow it to happen. They sort of definitionally have to be. Yes, yes. So even if even if they are clean, it's just because they choose not to enforce these things, whereas the the border guard are from elsewhere. They are outsiders, which is why this guy did not trust them. Because criminals tend not to trust outsiders. That's just a rule. They'll all say um, that this that particular situation with border guard is likely a result of recent um, reforms that were taken just a year prior to the precisely invasion. Precisely. Um, it. I don't know if our listeners remember. I'm actually not sure if we covered this or not. Um, but uh, a few years back, the basically the entire leadership of the border service was fired um, for gross incompetence and corruption. Uh, because, well, <laughs> they were grossly incompetent and corrupt. Uh, and Ukrainian border guards historically have had a um, reputation, let's say, for. Uh, massive corruption and incompetence so the the fact that there are new border guards and they their entire basically system has been overhauled um has has probably not helped the smuggling trade exactly because you want locals to be watching (laughs) if you're if you're a, a criminal you want the cops to be like your childhood friend if you've seen the departed uh that gets the idea across. So the, the state border guard here, they were all from, you know, anywhere in the country, just assigned to this area. 
a lot of them were uh, had previously been assigned closer to the front line, and this was kind of a resting rotation, kind of like a, a less a less immediately problematic posting to have. Give some some context for this. Um, while the Russian military, uh, while there are elements of the Russian military stationed in Transnistria or the Russian occupied part of Moldova, it's not a large um, portion. I believe it caps out at about five thousand men. About and they are not well equipped. Like that is not a prestige posting in the Russian military. Um, so the the threat from them is purely academic. While like technically they could ford the river um, and invade, it would just be a bunch of very poorly trained guys with small arms um, who would not survive. The attempt. Yeah. Not that that hasn't stopped Russia before, but um, they Russia has has not shown any indication that um, they would uh, they are planning or will use um, the troops that they have stationed in Moldova. Yeah, it's not a, a real threat from that direction, but there is, of course, a lot of smuggling that happens. I think they said that that day that we were brought in, there were uh, seven smugglers that were captured. And arrested and taken to that location. So it is active in as far as border control stuff goes in, especially on, you know, a smuggler's route, but it's not super dangerous in that way. So we are left with this situation where the border guard are all are from other parts of the country. A lot of them are combat veterans. They're all very young. Uh, their commander must have been in his late 20s, like younger than me, certainly. And whereas the local police were, again, local and older guys. So we kind of see, you know, the uh, the internal struggle of Ukraine in just this one location where you have these likely corrupt cops who are definitely in on it with this smuggler slash weed grower. Although marijuana is close to being legal in Ukraine so that will soon be a legal business that he's going there the 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 older guys much more stern guys you could see it on their faces uh much more uh distrustful of outsiders and then on the other hand you have the military with these young guys who are are much more um uh you know accepting are much more like kind of cosmopolitan uh, we talk to them. One of them is like trying to raise money for his brother's military unit, for example, and asked us to get the word out. So once I get that information from Chris Tapps of whatever fundraiser that was, if you want to uh, kick kick them some some fundraising money to buy a, a vehicle on the front, it was just a very interesting contrast of you know old versus new. I have to say the the smuggling trade um, between Ukraine and Transnistria was. Probably a lot more relaxed and uh, lightly touched prior to the uh, full-scale invasion. Of course, after the full-scale invasion, um, trade with Moldova is, or rather, trade with the Russian-occupied part of Moldova with uh, Transnistria is, is likely tantamount to treason. Um, since, again, that place is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, the Russian mob. Yeah, yes and no, not officially. It's still possible to go there. but. You can't like recognize that it's controlled by Russia, obviously. You can't give that kind of nod. So nothing will really be on paper. But if someone has, you know, serious long term business dealings there, 
they are likely going to get a lot of scrutiny from the SBU because they are dealing with Russian intelligence services and Russian mafia while in Transnistria. There's no two ways about it. That's just how that area works. So obviously people have to be much more on guard about anything that comes and goes uh, from there, which makes me kind of think of what the economy of Transnistria is now when it's entirely based on smuggling and, you know, the black market economy. And it's now entirely surrounded by actively hostile states, whereas before Moldova kind of came to an understanding with the existence of Transnistria, Ukraine had an understanding that uh, Transnistria is just there, whereas now it's much more seen as a a headquarters for uh, Russian dirty operations. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, Transnistria prior to the Falkland invasion was um, seen as, as like administratively. There was a lot of leeway and um, smoothing out. For example, the university I went to in Ukraine, we had uh, one of our, we had a student from Transnistria, and I asked her, of course, um, how like she ended up in Kiev, and she was like, "Well, I just submitted my documents." So there weren't a lot of administrative barriers um, between Transnistria and Ukraine for obvious reasons. There was never a need to really impose these barriers. Um, beyond the the most direct and simple ones. Yeah, even with transit-wise, there is a train that went through there. There's buses that went through there. I know the train has stopped working. There might still be buses. I'm not too sure. I didn't really check. But before, very smooth. <laughs> it's it, it was just kind of taken as an oddity more than anything else. It's just a remnant of the Soviet past. Yeah, right? you, you, you pass through there. There'll be some Lenin statues. Isn't that weird? Um, again, another newsletter, wrote a newsletter about that. If you want to throw us that $10 a month, I wrote about that as well. But, um, but now of course, much more, much more serious. Uh, so at the end of this night, um, because it took so long, they decided to just release us at five in the morning. Cause that's when curfew ends. So five in the morning, rolling back to Odessa, extraordinarily tired. And of course the next day is pretty much a write off because we were awake the whole night except for some brief naps unpleasant but funny story from it all right with that over and after you guys had caught your breath um the next city on your itinerary was mikolaev and you'd actually been to mikolaev before so what's what's changed how is the city doing now especially after this new assault on the ports yeah so before i had just i had I'd taken a trip to to Odessa, just a brief stop off where basically my, I was taking a bus from Kherson to Odessa during my Kherson trip, basically stopped in the center of town for 10 minutes and moved on. So I kind of had seen Mikolaev since my reporting trip back in October, uh, I'd say when it was the front line. Um, but this was my first time actually spending real time in the city. Um, and I'd say right now, The city is in large part back to life. Uh, A lot of it is still heavily destroyed. Um, So the Admiralty building, which is a main part of the city center, uh, the left half, the the left wing of this, of the building was destroyed. Um, There's a theater that was destroyed. There was a restaurant that had been to in peacetime that was destroyed. The, the visible scars on the city are still very visible. Um, at, at a few points, I saw that where cluster munitions had hit, 
I saw the, you know, the flower pattern on the concrete of where a cluster munition kind of scattered its, uh, its explosive, uh, debris. So looking back at, I think the last episode where we talked about cluster munitions have been used by Russia this entire time. I took note of that one time that it had been used. Um, and we'll have, um, a link to a recent discussion I had about cluster munitions with an anti, uh, cluster munitions NGO, um, for new lines magazine. We'll have that link in the description. An interview that I listened to while I was waiting in line for a shawarma in Odessa, by the way. So that's how I listened uh, to that interview, did with shawarma in hand. So the, the, in the rest of Mikolaev, the, the city center had mostly opened up again, except for the about two blocks directly around the, the city government buildings. Again, the city hall had been destroyed during my October, September, October trip. Don't remember. I actually went into this droid building. That was cool. Um, I posted uh, pictures of it at the time. But at the t- and during the siege, basically the entirety of the Riverwalk area was shut down. Now it is only the area immediately around City Hall, and the rest of it had opened up. And in that area, like how in Kiev they have the displays of the destroyed Russian tanks, they did the same thing in Mikolaev of displaying the tanks that had been destroyed. Uh, while McLive was the battlefront. But other than that, most things had opened up again. There were actually restaurants open this time around. Uh, much more people were there. The city is recovering just because it is no longer a frontline number one city, but rather behind another city in the frontline. So not quite frontline anymore. And that's enough for people to go back and start rebuilding. Though, of course, like I said, it's still very heavily damaged. As far as I understand, the port infrastructure in Mikolaev has basically been made non-functional. It was not. It was non-functional this entire time. Uh, basically, uh, Mikolaev, in order for Mikolaev boats to reach the Black Sea, they would have to go by a. They would still have to go by quite a few Russian defenses. There is the Kinburn Peninsula which is technically part of Mikolaev Oblast, though it is more attached to Kherson Oblast, like physically. Uh, it's mostly national park territory, but that's occupied by Russia. And in order to leave uh, Mikolaev by river, you would have to go past it, which is impossible. Like this entire time, the port has been absolutely out of commission. It's never been uh, back up. Is there anything else you saw in McAlive during your, your second trip there? Um, was, there was there more or less of a military presence? There's certainly less of a military presence. Uh, there's a few points I remember, like military bases around the city that are now not that anymore. Uh, there's guards and all that, but. I think if you didn't, if you weren't directly next to the city government buildings, you probably would not see too many soldiers, no. It's good to hear the city is at least starting to slightly recover from um, all the damage that it's taken. Uh, what was your next stop? Yeah, so for Mikolaev, our plan was to see, well, we wanted to go to Kherson, but like there were permissions issues, not everything was up to date. So I did not want to take everyone else to Kherson when I was the only one that was allowed to be there. Um, so instead, we kind of bypass Kherson and go to look at 
the Kokovka Dam. So the Kokovka, or the Kokovka Reservoir. So when the Kokovka Dam was destroyed and the flooding happened, we talked about this and we'll talk about it more, of course. Uh, it drained the reservoir behind the dam. This reservoir stretches from Novohokovka, uh, just north of Kherson, all the way up to the city of Zaporizhia, where the next uh, dam is on the Dnipro River. Uh, the Dnipro River is a series of a bunch of dams. Like, there's a lot of dams on this river. So this reservoir was just in between two of them. And but now what used to be a gigantic lake is now largely dried out, and we wanted to go see it. So on the way there, we passed through Kriviri just because it's a long drive and all that. So Kriviri, uh, it is a big industrial city within the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. It was kind of close to the front line while the bank of the Kherson region was occupied. The Russians tried to reach up into Kriviri, but never really had the juice to go um, to the outskirts of the city itself. But this city, not uh, a big tourist town. We didn't have too much to do there. We just stayed the night and moved on. So from there, uh, not to disparage Kriviri, it's of course a very one of the largest cities in the country. It is where President Zelensky is from. Um, but for our purposes, we didn't have much to do. Because we wanted to move on to see some of the areas around what used to be this reservoir. So I marked off a few points on the map. And the most important one was a tiny village called uh, Pokrovska. And this is where like my weird history brain came to mind. So I wanted to, I'll now explain what I wanted to do as a project before the war happened. And how they completely changed now. So along this stretch of river, it used to be kind of the Cossack heartland. So Zaporizhian Cossacks, these, you know, semi-nomadic uh, warriors of the Ukrainian steppe, protecting the Ukrainian areas from raids by the Turks and all that in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. So along this, where the old river used to be, there was a bunch of Cossack settlements. Uh, before the Cossacks, there were Scythian settlements. Everyone that kind of lived in this territory, you want to build things next to the river. And like is often the case when you build a dam and you make a reservoir behind a dam, it floods away all these um, former residences, these archaeological sites. Uh, you hear about it like every time there's a dam built, this is the aftermath of a bunch of things being flooded. And that was the case with the building of the Kohovka Dam as well. It flooded a lot of these historic sites that existed at the former riverbanks of the Dnipro. And I wanted to see um, what was left of those things, because now that the dam is gone, now that the reservoir is gone, a lot of archaeological sites have been uncovered. Of course, you cannot get to these archaeological sites very well because the former reservoir is still the front line. The Russians are on the other side and the artillery is active, but you can still kind of see some stuff as long as you aren't too wedded to staying there long enough to do proper, you know, excavations and all that. So I looked at the map where some of these former Cossack sites were. And I found one particular that used to be called the New Siege. So it was one of the capitals of the Zaporizhian Cossacks. It was built along the Dnipro River. Uh, when the Cossack siege was destroyed, it became just a regular village. And this village then became flooded by the reservoir. And now that the reservoir is gone, it's been uncovered by the reservoir. And it's right next to the village of Pokrovska in the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. Tiny village. 
And I wanted to see some of these sites. So we go to those sites, go to Pokrovska. Before we get too, too much into this, I, I just wanted to ask, what is the, the drained reservoir area look like now? So the drained reservoir kind of looks, uh, it's hard to describe. It looks like a big wetland, which is what it is. Uh, all the vegetation that had been at the bottom of the river, you know, all the seaweed or, or anything like that, now is grass. Um, I don't know if the same species of grass can exist both above and below water, but it had not died out yet. Um, likely because the soil there is still very much no, completely soaked with water. Um, it's a mud flat essentially. So when people say like, "Oh, now that the the river, this reservoir's gone, the Ukrainians can attack the Russians on the other side, or vice versa," that's not going to happen. This is a gigantic meadow that still has river running through it, uh, like multiple rivers running through it. Like if you look at old old maps um, from well before the fifties, but into like Cossack times, it would show the Dnipro River here as being a bunch of smaller rivers that kind of diverge and come back together and all that very kind of tricky territory, but also the kind of thing that's nice if you're doing agriculture, for example, the, so this is a big meadow uh, multi-sected by a few different versions of what is now the Dnipro river, which was what the Dnipro river used to be. Uh, you can see straight across it. It is very open territory. Uh, you can see the villages on the other side. Um, it is nothing like if you wanted to attack across this area, you are taking a tank across a bunch of mud flats, multiple rivers in open view of enemy artillery. Not a bad, not a, not a good idea. That is my summary of that situation, but it is pretty. I'll say that I'll post pictures of that as well to the Patreon for this episode. So, um, despite the, the destruction, the dam, the draining the reservoir, it, it hasn't presented the Russians with any new um, tactical uh, opportunities. No, it is impassable territory there still, I'd say. But yes, so we go to this village and a few others, and we ask them, what's it like now? They used to live on this giant lake that is no longer there. That affects people's lifestyles. Um, of course, every Ukrainian likes to go fishing. So that was the first thing that was brought up is that they can no longer fish, which is an utter tragedy for any Ukrainian. If you've been in this country, every, every stretch of water is completely covered by fishermen. That's just how the culture works. So, so I will say, luckily, um, Ukrainian villages are not reliant on fishing um, for basic sustenance. That is no, this, luckily this is not, not an aspect. Fishing is of incredibly popular um, hobby. recreational recreation. Yeah, it, it's purely recreational. Everyone loves doing it. Um, it's regrettable, but at least at the very least it, it's, uh, these villages don't have to worry about, um, having a, a food source taken away from them. Right. But then we get into the actual problem of these areas, which is the supply of water. This reservoir supplied water to the entire region, including like the dam is supposed to. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea, including a Kriviri. So the, in the city of Kriviri, apparently there's large parts of the city where there's just, the, the water pressure doesn't go up past like the third floor or something in a, in a building. Like there are serious water problems in Kriviri, which is the biggest city in this, in this immediate area that's fed by the reservoir. But also all these villages, 
no longer have enough water. Uh, as we went through this village, we saw a bunch of water tanks. So uh, the, a lot of these are run by the fire department, for example. But these gigantic um, trucks filled with drinking water are brought into these villages and the people who live there take what they need from them. Uh, basically, every truck that I saw going in and out of these villages either was a water tank or was next to a water tank. Uh, the water is all being imported right now. This is not sustainable. This is obviously not sustainable. Uh, there has to be some kind of pipes built to bring water there. There has to be some kind of solution to replace the water supplies that were lost. Um, a lot of this is agricultural land, and so far, the rains and the tributaries of the Dnipro River have provided enough water so far for their crops, but their wells have run dry. Uh, the water table has drained out as well or is getting close to draining out, so that's going to be a problem coming up very soon, and it's kind of... A humanitarian disaster in one way, but stable enough that people don't have to like run from it because they're they get enough aid to like keep things at a stable level, but not enough to thrive, certainly, and not enough to continue as things are for a very long time. I also want to note that um Kriviri is like you mentioned, um part of the or, or right next to what is kind of the agricultural heartland of Ukraine. Um, it's right on the border with uh, uh, Kirvograd Oblast, which is the, the most kind of agricultural um, region in the country. Uh, and obviously, it's incredibly important economically for that reason. Um, so these, these water troubles may signal massive um, consequences for uh, Ukrainian harvests going forward because, well, if you can't, if you can't get water to irrigate crops, you can't really grow things. Right. Like for example, throughout history, a lot of Herson Oblast was kind of arid. So because they had really high quality soil, it was of course good for growing for that reason. But because Herson Oblast is not very or Hirsona into Zaporizhia Oblast does not have very many rivers that run through it. Well, except for the Dnipro. Except for the Dnipro River, of course. But that requires a lot of infrastructure in order to build the irrigation around it. So this is all very arid, kind of semi-arid territory that doesn't get as much rain. So it has kind of relied on uh, the irrigation from the Dnipro River in order to support the agricultural industry here. And without this reservoir, like there, there are other solutions that can be found, but you can't find those solutions under Russian artillery fire, <laughs> which is the, 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 the factor here, which makes an environmental and economic disaster uh, far worse than it would be under if this was a natural disaster. All right, let's um, go back to the ruins. So you'd mentioned that um, a lot of them were uncovered after the, the reservoir had been drained. Um, was there anything that really stood out to you? Yeah, I found the ruins of some stuff <laughs> in the water uh, in this area of the new siege. Um, so if you've been to any like ancient Greek sites, for example, in Ukraine, there's Olbia, you'll find a bunch of pottery shards and things. And we found that here. 
there was a bunch of uh, pottery that was destroyed. There's a bunch of bricks, tiles, all on uh, what used to be the river, the river bottom. Uh, this was very clearly used to be a town that we were in. So I'm pretty sure we found the new siege, though um, the sound of Russian artillery in the background and the closely approaching nighttime did not make me do, you know, an exacting survey. I would like to go back and follow up on my story here just because I found everything there so fascinating. But we did find uh, the ruins of what used to be a brick building. The the foundations were there. Some of the wall, like the low walls were still there. Uh, again, tiles, ceramics of different kind. So I did stumble into an archaeological site that had not been seen at least since the 50s um, and that I'd like to find out more about. It sounds, I really have mixed feelings about this because from an archaeological standpoint, um, it, it really does sound fascinating. Um, but just from a humanitarian standpoint, it's, uh, like the, the archeological discovery is the direct consequence of a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, and it's hard to, to really be as excited as I normally would for, um, for, for this kind of thing, because this, it shouldn't have happened. These ruins under normal circumstances should have stayed buried. Yeah. Well, the way that I'm kind of thinking about it is that the human built environment around the reservoir is not very old, only a few decades since the fifties. So everything adjusted to that, the water system adjusted to that, the um, agricultural system adjusted, the layout of the, the villages, everything about life there is a result of deliberate decisions made by the Soviet Union and then independent Ukraine since the 1950s and really the Soviet Union. And at the time when it was built, uh, the building of this dam was kind of a natural disaster. Dams are tricky things. It wiped out the habitat of, uh, it was called, you know, the, the Cossack Meadow was the old word for this area, or the wild meadow, the great meadow. And it kind of threw off the living patterns of the people who were there before. Not to mention the inevitable ecological destruction caused of course, by any massive um, geoengineering program. like a Right, and the ecological destruction that went around with that as well. But since then, it created a new status quo. And the destruction of the dam creates yet another status quo. So the, the old status quo itself was not that old. I think it can be adjusted to with enough uh, planning, with enough um, maybe building smaller dams. There's lots of discussions going on in Ukraine right now of what exactly to do even after the war when everything's safe. Um, do we want to get this reservoir back knowing that it was kind of damaging when it was built? Uh, do we want things to go back to normal? Do we want to take this opportunity to think of X, Y, and Z, 100 different possibilities for what else to do with the area? Um, it's We can't really answer those questions now because we can't exactly build another dam with the Russians on the other side of the riverbank. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, so we have to find these temporary solutions. But in the long term, we have to think of what we want to do with this area. I think in the long term, this will absolutely be one of the major um, national conversations. Huge, huge. Yeah. What like, exactly are we going to do? 
do because I don't know what to do with it. Obviously, I yeah, don't. Neither do I. Yeah. Um, neither of us are agricultural experts. Um, neither of us are local to the region. Um, so whatever opinions we may have really don't count for much. Um, though I want to say that there there has been a huge loss <laughs> already felt by basically all Ukrainians, and that is um, the watermelons. Uh, from around mid-July to September, October is traditionally watermelon season in Ukraine, and we usually have our um, local domestic watermelons from um, Herson Oblast, and they just don't exist. Every single watermelon at the market is currently being imported from Turkey. And they are about 10 times as expensive um, as uh, our domestic ones. Um, for I, I, got, I got some from Odessa, some Odessa region watermelon, but they're not the same. I'm sorry, Odessa region. You're not a Hirson. Hirson watermelons. watermelons were really, um, really something special. Uh, perfectly sweet. Like just you, you had really big versions, but you could find normal like five five, six kilo ones that you could actually carry. And uh, they were something special. And um, this is absolutely a loss that's going to be felt. Um, that is being felt by basically every Ukrainian because watermelons and corn, that's, that's, that's basically the, the definition of the Ukrainian summer. Um, so whatever, whatever happens in the future, I really hope it in, in, involves um, some consideration for uh, Hirson's watermelon. Yeah, so I guess to sum things up from this leg of the journey, the project that I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to do was basically how the Dnipro River had historically been very troublesome. Um, there's been lots of rapids, lots of these areas where it becomes wetland. And in the process of industrialization by the Russian Empire and all that, and the Soviet Union, it kind of tamed the the it tamed the Dnipro River and turned it into something much more productive, uh, but also somewhat um, industrialized. We can say like it's not a natural river at this point. Most most big rivers aren't, but in the process of doing it, they literally washed away uh, Cossack heritage. Like the rising dam of the Soviet Union in the era of getting rid of Ukrainian identity, literally got rid of Ukrainian identity. Uh, by the building of this reservoir. A and happy coincidence, I'm sure. Yes. So this is, on one hand, an utter disaster. Like I said, like the water situation there is a complete crisis. People get their water taken to them by truck. That's not what water does. But on the other, it does spark this conversation of what to do with the area now now that it is the decision of Ukrainians to make. But first, we need to win. But first, we need to win. Uh, now, Pokrovska wasn't your last stop. You, you did um, stop for, I believe, at least a day in, in Zaporizhia, uh, which is incredibly close to the front. Um, Zaporizhia, you might consider one of the main frontline towns at the moment. How was that? Yeah, so Zaporizhia is, at the moment, the largest city in the direct vicinity of the front. Uh, it's closer to the front than Kharkiv is, so I'll just call it, you know, the frontline city of the country. And you can definitely tell when you're there. It's a very militarized city. Uh, 
cops all over the place, uh, lots of soldiers, a lot of soldiers that are like being rotated away to like get, you know, a weekend vacation or something. Um, it, the military presence there is very noticeable. Uh, it's a city, it's another city that I enjoyed quite a bit um, in normal times. And I'd say that the population is closer to just, you know, feeling it out. It felt like it was half the population of what it was before. Uh, a lot of people escaped. Um, my girlfriend, for example, she's from Zaporizhia and her whole family got out like very quickly from that city because it's, it's not safe. Um, for example, uh, sh like the day that I left actually was when a hotel in Zaporizhia was destroyed. This was the, the Reichardt's Zaporizhia Hotel. I was actually looking to stay there that day, but it was full, um, or at least it, a lot of the booking websites and stuff right now don't work in Zaporizhia because it's not safe, I guess. I'm not sure of it. Uh, so I stayed elsewhere, but this Reichardt's hotel was hit and destroyed as long as well as several other places. But this Reichardt's was, um, a major place for journalists, for, uh, humanitarian aid workers, much like the, the Ria pizzeria in Kramatorsk, which was destroyed, uh, killing a very famed Ukrainian writer, uh, Victoria Emelina, Emelina. It really seems like the Russians are. Um, making a habit of of targeting these kind of popular with, with very much very much a, a pattern uh, because they had done the same thing to another city that's kind of escaping my mind right now in the Donetsk region uh, but the same thing they hit um, a restaurant slash hotel thing that where a lot of the humanitarians and journalists. Russia has, over the past, you know, two months, has made a very obvious policy of targeting these um, gathering points for internationals, uh, for the kind of people who get the word out about the war. Uh, they are obviously have declared open war against any journalist who steps foot in this country and is directly targeting them for death, um, which, as part of the journalistic profession and as someone who stays and uh, networks at such places, uh, makes me uncomfortable, but that's the idea. That's the idea that Russia is going for. Now, one of my, um, one of my main questions, I think, uh, for the Zaporizhia lecture trip is so Kiev has, um, it's basically normal. I mean, we are in a war air raid sirens go off pretty frequently, but Kiev in, in a lot of ways really feels like Kiev. It doesn't feel um, besieged like it did during the actual siege. Um, it doesn't feel like there's any panic or worry, um, though, of course, the only real conversations you'll have with people is about the war and how the government's doing with the war, etc. Um, but how is Zaporizhia? It's a frontline city. It's way closer. It doesn't have nearly as much um, air defense as Kiev does. What, what is the mood there like? Well, it's not Kherson. I can say that. Um, it's not like they have artillery shells falling down on their heads three times in an hour. It's not like that. But a lot of things are closed down, of course. Like I said, there's a major military presence. Um, you feel it much more acutely. Uh, it feels closer, I'd say, to Mikolaev. There is a tense feeling in the air. The military presence, of course, is very high. Um, 
a lot of the things that you might want to do there are not open. For example, Zaporizhia, a former uh, capital of the Ukrainian Cossacks. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, attractions related to that. There's museums, heritage sites. Yeah. The, the main Island of the city, which used to host all these uh, tourist sites, including the, like a replica of the Cossack siege is now closed of course. And there's a, that, that Island is being used in a lot of ways for different, no government uh, and military functions. Um, So (laughs) getting rid of, you know, the, the main tourist attraction of the city, that also affects the, the feeling in it. It's much more tense. Uh, The tension definitely eases up the further North you go away from the front line. But Zaporizhia is very, very close to it, of course. Uh, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, talk about that a lot. The front line is um, just dozens of kilometers away, including you know the counteroffensive right now, Orihiv, not far away from Zaporizhia. Is there much of a civilian population left in the city? Um, when I went to Kharkiv last year, um, not long after the Russians had um, begun withdrawing from the, the northern portions of Kharkiv Oblast, it was very clear that the city was not quite a ghost town, but um, very underpopulated depend, uh, compared to how it should be. Under, definitely underpopulated, yeah. It felt like half. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm very bad at judging numbers, <laughs> but it was very, very noticeably depopulated. And of course, a lot of the people who would be there are also people who uh, came in from the villages around Zaporizhia of what is now the front line. So even the people who are there are not necessarily you know locals of Zaporizhia, but rather uh, IDPs who came from the even more intensely hit areas. Uh, did you fall under any sort of Russian attack while you were in Zaporizhia? No, no, we actually got quite lucky throughout this entire trip. Um, we didn't have any too close of calls. We kind of missed things by a day or two in some of our locations, but we didn't have to deal with anything. No. Well, it's good to hear that you didn't have any uh, adventures in Zaporizhia. I mean, um, being, uh, having a conflict with a likely weed smuggler near the Transnistrian border is one thing, but uh, I'd be quite a bit more worried if you had uh, any sort of um, adventures in Zaporizhia or in that region. No, the only Z- the only Zaporizhia adventure is that on the drive back to Kiev from Zaporizhia, uh, we had a bit of, we had a flat tire, uh, kind of close to Poltava, in almost the middle of nowhere, but not quite. So we had to. Well, I stayed with the car, and the other two had to hike back about five kilometers to the last village to find a car replace a car repair place that was open twenty four seven. So that. Wow. That is I, a much had, a much better that is a much better alternative than getting shelled. Yeah, there was a lot of I'd say bad luck throughout the trip, but not in a, you know, lethal sense of the word. I think during a war, anything short of getting shelled or shot is actually good luck. Yeah. Everything fine. So you made it back to Kiev what's your overall takeaway from, from this little uh, excursion? So I guess my overall takeaway is one, I really need to get back to the Hohofka reservoir. I need to do more coverage of the people there. 
because I feel like I have the start of a story, but I don't have a full story, if you know what I mean. So I need to get back to that territory. I want to maybe get a, a fixer who can take me there that can get into some more nooks and crannies that then just, you know, going to a place and stumbling onto stuff. Uh, overall, I'd say Odessa, resilience, <laughs> resilient city. Uh, people will have their August beach vacation and you cannot tell them no even if there's literally signs telling them no. Uh, the rest of this reservoir needs to be watched very carefully, and I intend to do so. Uh, there will be developing stories there. Um, but again, the people there are very resilient. They were, like, like I said, like the first thing that they're worried about is that you know they couldn't go fishing and you know, go out on their boats to the islands anymore because they're, they're not islands anymore. <laughs> uh, they were, cons but their quality of life, of course, they uh, want to talk as with anywhere else, that's another thing you learn as a journalist in Ukraine is that people are very eager to tell their stories. I've mentioned this after every uh, every field excursion I've been on, but people come up to you, you say, oh, I'm a journalist. And they're like, yeah, I've lived here my whole life. And now I don't know how to water my tomatoes next month because we don't know what the water situation is. And that's what I do. I'm a tomato farmer. So you... This has to be watched more intently than it has been. I'd say that this is actually quite undercovered, the aftermath of the, the, the dam flooding. And I think that should be one of our things. Well, Anthony, thank you very much for uh, your trip and the reporting that you did. I absolutely agree that this is um, definitely an, a topic that we should uh, focus on. And dear listeners, if you would like to help us continue this kind of reporting, um, I sorry to say it's not cheap. Fixers are incredibly expensive. Um, and this sort of travel is not something we can sustainably do yet, but, uh, with your support. And if you'd like to hear more of this work, and if you'd like us to continue this kind of work, please think of subscribing to our Patreon. Um, please continue to listen to us and tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone about us. Um, the more exposure we can get, and the more support we can get, and the more of this sort of reporting um, from the front, the human stories, the more of that we can do. Yes, we have also opened up our Discord, which was it was very welcome. <laughs> I'd say it immediately got uh, quite a bit of uh, traction there from our subscribers. Again, since our last episode, we did get um, a, a good number by our our relative ranking of. <laughs> Of subscribers very modest standards. yeah by our modest standards it was a big jump by our standards so thank you to our new subscribers uh make sure to check out our um link tree for different resources on ukraine and different charities which has been um a pretty hot topic lately uh look at rate us review us thumbs up five star i opened up a youtube account if you would like to listen to us on YouTube, uh, we will want to expand that a bit into other content. But for now, we'll just be posting full episodes to YouTube as well, as well as a TikTok for clips. We're getting on, you know, all the things a real media empire over here. <laughs> um, but if you're like, media empire, that's that's yeah. that's the word. That's the yeah. Word. Um, so if you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype. And I would now like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers, old and new. 
Thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivanka Kratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Devi, Dimitri, Etienne, Jan, Jenny Louise, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Albritton, Michael Wickman, Mike Barone, Sander Bongers, Scott Webley, Shieldwall, T. Bart, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDowell, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Bristol Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Pavona, Eric Honnold, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marguerite, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, Another Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McGurlin, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokiuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, Victoria, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much for your support. And until next week, when we have our news update, Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. Hey, hey.